I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Hal Pomerantz. Hal is the founder and principal consultant for Deer Run Associates and has over 25 years of cybersecurity experience. As a digital forensic investigator, Hal has consulted on cases ranging from intellectual property theft to employee sabotage to organized cybercrime and to malicious software infrastructures. He has worked with law enforcement agencies in the United States and Europe and with global corporations. While perfectly at home in the Windows and Mac forensic world, Hal is a recognized expert in the analysis of Linux and Unix systems and has made key contributions in this domain. His ext3 file recovery tools were the direct result of an investigation recovering data that led to multiple indictments and a successful prosecution. His research on the ext4 file system forensics provided a basis for the development of open source forensic support for this file system. Hal has also contributed to a popular tool for automating Linux memory in acquisition and analysis. Hal is a SANS faculty fellow and SANS longest tenured instructor and a primary instructor for the Securing Linux Unix SEC 506 course. Hal is also a regular contributor to the SANS Digital Forensics and Incident Response blog and co-author of the Command Line Kung Fu blog. In this episode, we discuss Linux and Unix forensics, his start at Bell Labs, helping others in the industry, the data enterprises should collect, running your own security firm, and so much for and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Hal, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. You've, you've been on the top of my list of people I wanted to uh, actually have on the podcast since its inception. Uh, you know, we've kind of traded traded jokes and stuff over the years on, on different Twitter feeds and stuff, but it's always been, uh, you've always been somebody I've wanted to talk to because I think you have a lot of unique and inter- interesting perspectives on the industry. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, the power of social media. Yeah, right. And and one of the things too is also I've also been drawn to some of the work you've done. But it's in seeing you present uh, or do webcasts even on some of the stuff with Linux that you've done a lot of heavy work in the Linux world. And I just have to ask you: Do you, do you hate Windows? <laughs> no, I, I mean because of course you know Windows is responsible for so much of my incident response business. You know how could I hate it? Um, uh, I just, you know, I grew up, um, I started in my career doing Unix sysadmin back back before Linux was even a thing. Um, and so I think that, you know, I'm passionate about the Linux operating system and, and I've spent so much time with it. I think I have a lot to share in that in that realm. But, you know, it's a it, it's a Windows world. Um, uh, so much of the stuff that we used to do on Unix when I started in this industry has moved into the Microsoft realm. And, uh, you know, it's just so much in the landscape. You have to be 
conversant in all of these platforms. Yeah, and it's, it, we're even seeing now, uh, you know, Bash being part of Windows. So I think it's it's an interesting time to to be in computing. And, and PowerShell on Linux, right? Yeah. So let's all let's all group hug and kumbaya and. Uh, it's kind, of, yeah, it's kind of world peace and infosec. Well, maybe not quite, but uh, how, how did you get started? Actually, you know, I think it, one of the interesting things I like to talk about a lot in, in this podcast, particularly is everybody's kind of career path. So you start as more on the admin side with Unix and Linux? Right. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I like to joke that I went to uh, Ivory Tower Liberal Arts School and got a vocational education in systems administration. Um, but what happened was I was at a very small school for my undergraduate work, and the faculty was the head of our computer science program, had, had gotten a grant to buy a bunch of engineering workstations, but didn't have any staff to run the network. And so the students got to run the network, you know, put the computers on the network and, and set them up and do operating system upgrades. and all of that real work that we needed to keep the lab going with varying degrees of success. And, um, but it was, it was enough that when I was sitting there in my senior year and a recruiter called um, with a contracting job in New Jersey at Bell Labs doing Unix support that I had enough experience on my resume to, to get that job and, and get started in the field. So right place, right time, I guess. And how did that parlay into more of the information security world? So my first boss uh, at Bell Labs was a great woman named Barbara Lee, and she was heavily involved in the Bell Labs computer security group because she had tracked down um, an attacker who'd been sort of you know, running rampant on, on Bell Labs networks. Um, and... So she saw that I was interested in computer security stuff and introduced me to, I mean, just a lot of great people. I mean, you're, you're, you're fresh out of college and you're meeting folks like, you know, Bill Cheswick and Steve Bellavan and, and wow, you know, this is, this is where I want to be, right? Um, so, uh, you know, again, right place, right time. And a lot of people who were willing to take the time on a kid, you know, just out of college who, who probably thought he, he knew more than he actually did. Um, and, you know, uh, the expectation was that I would pay it forward. You know, when I got to be a senior person in the industry, that I would, I would help out up-and-coming people. And I've tried to, to live up to that because I really wouldn't be here without the help of those, those great people. Definitely. Uh, yeah, and that's a, kind of a common theme we've seen with a lot of the other the folks that have been on the show. It's You really do have to give it forward because I think so many of us kind of have gotten to um, gotten to where we are with, uh, you know, kind of, I think we was in David Cohen's interview, kind of standing on the shoulders of giants. There's a lot of people that help us out along the way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So w one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of curious about, too, is that you've seen you, – you know, know you have a good depth of knowledge, certainly in, in Unix and Windows, but what are some of the different types of attacks uh, that work or that you see, I guess, on a professional basis between the two different types of uh, operating systems? You know, it's it's funny that the level of attacks we see against Linux systems are just seems so primitive compared to what we're seeing in Windows, but it's it's because of 
you know, the escalation that's happened on the Windows side of the world. I mean, you know, a lot of people like to bag on Microsoft for security, but honestly, they have been, you know, vastly improving the security level in the Windows operating system, you know, since, since you know, Vista forward kind of thing. And, and so it's, it's just more difficult, you know, to a, attack a Windows platform. A lot of the obvious holes have been closed. Um, and, and, you know, also I think that there's more monitoring happening in the Windows universe. I mean, you, you're seeing all of these, you know, you know, both Microsoft and, you know, third-party products, you know, from Carbon Black to, you know, Falcon Host by CrowdStrike and all these different, you know, solutions for detecting and shutting down this activity before it even gets started. So it's, it, you know, it's more difficult for attackers to, you know, persist in that environment. On, on, the, on the Linux side of things, I mean, we're still seeing stuff like, you know, you know, find an exploit, but, you know, latest is Apache struts, right? Um, find an exploit and then run a shell script and away you go, right? Um, and, and that is just, I mean, it's nothing like the kind of shenanigans that, you know, hoops that people have to jump through in the Windows universe to, to get in and, and, and persist. So, although I will say, you know, there's an awful lot of, you know, get an exploit going in Windows and then run some PowerShell that we're seeing recently. So, you know, PowerShell is the, the brave new frontier for a, a lot of these attackers because it's ubiquitous in the environment and people aren't watching it as much as they should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and when it comes to kind of security architectures, or any, any kind of particular advice on either products, tools, or staffing that you would give to somebody that's building something for those detective um, capabilities? Is there is there things that you're you're seeing in your work that that you're, would you find it you're like oh thank God they had this? <laughs> I mean, you know, for me, well, okay, so yeah, I mean, I think there's some sort of basic block and tackle stuff that you just need to have in your environment. Um, you know, log aggregation, you, you know, you, you got to get all of those logs uh, someplace where they're at least searchable. And obviously the next step from that is, is, you know, alerting on stuff that's just obviously bad. And, and you've got to, you know, be collecting some data about what's happening on your network. And it doesn't have to be full packet capture. I mean, you've got devices in your enterprise network that are capable of exporting NetFlow data and, you know, get that data somewhere, maybe the same, you know, place you're putting your logs and have some way of, you know, searching and correlating that data. You know, who are, who are the biggest outbound talkers? I mean, that, I mean, that alone, you know, is worth the price of admission. Um, DNS logs, you know, also fall into this category, right? If you're not collecting that stream of information about what's going on in your DNS, you're going to miss all these malware outbreaks that are happening. So, so, you know, just basic visibility, right? Um, Because you're never going to stop every threat. So you need to, you need to know as quickly as possible when things are going amiss in your environment. Yeah, it was interesting too, and just uh, you know, I, I was just out at the the RSA circus that is RSA a couple of weeks ago, and just yeah, there's this constant push of tools, tools, and tools. But it it seems that a lot of people are not talking about some of the the basics that a lot of folks need to have. Um, 
that you don't necessarily have to go out and buy something. You might already have some of these things in place and you're just not capitalizing on it the best you could. Right. It's, it, I mean, it's, you know, stuff in your environment that you already have, right? I mean, you know, you're producing logs, you're, you're capable of emitting NetFlow data. The trick is getting that information in a place where you can use it. And that's, I think, where a lot of people fall down on this. And also, frankly, just failing to invest in people, right? Buying, you know, shiny objects with blinking lights, um, but not investing in the people who need to understand what the blinking lights are saying and, and respond appropriately. Yeah, there's some metrics I've seen where for, you know, for every one of these enterprise uh, security products you put in, you almost need a full-time staff person to monitor and maintain it, much less uh, understand yeah. what's coming out of it. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, we've seen, you know, big breaches, right, um, where when they do the postmortem on the breach, it turns out that, yeah, you know, your IDS system was telling you all along that, you know, attackers were active in your network or your endpoint protection tool or whatever. But nobody was looking at it because it was nobody's job. And, and along that uh, kind of train of thought, is, is there particular aspects of somebody, you know, organizational's IR program, are there some fundamentals that you think that are more effective? You know, if we kind of look at the 80-20 rules, are there things that boil to the top that people should be doing that can give them the, the, bettest, the best gains uh, when it comes to dealing with incidents? Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, it's not sexy, but but log analysis is is really something that's that's so fundamental that that pops so many interesting events. You know, it's it's the it's the tripwire that tells you, oh wait, you know, I better go go look down at this. Oh look, you know, a strange service started up on this box, right? Could be you know persisting malware, right? Or Oh look, you know the LSAS process just crashed on this system, right? Could be somebody dumping credentials. You don't know, right? But at least when the tree fell over in the forest, somebody was around to hear it and do something effective with that information. And obviously, you do a, do a lot of training of people uh, with SANS and in, in, in that organization. But what are some of the core? I think, you know, I would say information or skills that information professionals really kind of need to have outside of maybe specific training, but what are some of the basics that you think really kind of stand out when somebody's effective as a professional? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. People always come to me and they say, you know, like, I really want to get, you know, I want to get started in information security. What's what's the first thing that I should focus on? And, and my answer is focus on getting a good grounding in, you know, basics of computing and you know that includes you know networking and operating systems and and a little bit of programming under your belt um, I mean what you would get in a in a sort of bachelor's level computer science program I'm eternally grateful working in you know the information security industry that you know I was able to get a degree in computer science and um, that I had, more than a decade of just operational IT experience, knowing how stuff is supposed to work, right? Knowing how computers are supposed to be networked together and how they talk to each other. Because that informs everything about, you know, information security, knowing what's normal. And, and then, you know, based on that, being able to say, hey, you know, what's going on over here? Because that doesn't look right. That's important. Um, and so that basic fundamental grounding in just, 
basic networking, network architecture, computer architecture, and operating systems is, is tremendously useful. I couldn't agree more. Um, at, at, so at some point in your, in, in your career path, you did kind of gravitate more towards forensics and IR. What draws you to that particular subset of information security? Um, well, I'll tell you. So I, I was doing, you know, operational IT for, as I said, more than a decade. And I got, I, you know, I just got tired of fighting the same battles over and over again. Every organization had the same issues and the same inertia around solving the problems, right? It was always, you know, more important things to be working on uh, until they got uh, attacked, you know, successfully attacked. And then all of a sudden, you know, there was, there was focus on doing it right, but at, you know, triple the cost and uh, uh, in a ridiculous hurry. And then, you know, after, after the incident excitement wore off, you know, the inertia set in again. And so it, it, it was apparent to me that um, the people who were really getting things done were the people who were responding to the incidents. So, okay, if, if that's the way, you know, organizations want to resolve their IT issues, I will, I will pivot, you know, my my mad information security and, and IT skills into doing incident response work where people will be happy when I show up, they will listen to what I have to say, and we will make things better because the organization is focused on solving the problem because there's a fire, right? And do I want to work that way? No. I mean, it'd be nice if we were all doing good IT up front. But since we seem, most organizations seem immune from doing that, okay, let me, let me do IT on an emergency response basis for you, right? What, what makes you, th why do you think most organizations do have that resistance to the proactive approach as opposed to often paying a lot more in, in the responsive approach? I, I think, I mean, part of it is that human beings are bad at estimating risk, right? Um, so it's, so the, the, they don't understand the reality that, uh, you know, it's funny, I was just checking into Twitter today and, and, uh, Vim Reams was suggesting, you know, it, it security is a emergent property of good IT, right? They don't, the organizations don't understand that all of the risks associated with doing a bad job with IT or, or kicking that can further down the road. They, they, don't, they don't get the risk-reward payout there. It seems like a lot of work and a lot of organizational impediments up front because they're not thinking about the longer term, where the reality for, for people is not, you know, if you'll be hacked, it's going to be when, right? And how bad is that incident going to be? And do you see that starting to change? I mean, we're seeing now more uh, more of the C-suite and you know reporting stuff to the board, where you know, people can potentially lose their jobs, or you know if if we see further regulation change, some of the landscape of that, where kind of people's asses are on the line. Quite frankly, is is there, is that going to change things? Do you think? Um, well, you know, um, we've how many um, 
you know, very expensive uh, in, intrusions have we seen in the last decade? I mean, Yahoo is certainly a wake-up call. It's, you know, oh, you know, a we lost a lot of valuation, and b our CEO is being penalized for you know failure to perform. Um, but you know, human beings have a really great ability to um, you know rationalize and. And think about other things uh, once once the past is a little ways behind them. So I, I don't I don't like to be cynical, but I've been in this industry for thirty years now, and I don't I don't see a lot of change happening here. We've got you know mandatory breach disclosure laws, and and big breaches are are in the news every day, and uh, yet I don't see a lot of traction happening. Are there things along some of the breaches you've worked, or maybe some of the the more common ones? Is there is there any kind of meta analysis of the patterns that you're saying? Wow, look, we're we're seeing a lot of commonality here. That if if these things were addressed, we might at least reduce the time to respond, or some of the uh, impact that the organization feels from some of the breaches. You know, uh, so uh, as a third party incident responder, I'm in a very I'm in a weird. Uh, part of the food chain, because generally, you know, organizations that are calling in a third-party incident response firm are kind of low down on the IT preparedness uh, end of things. And so I, I, I think I, I see companies at their worst, you know, and I certainly see them on their worst day, right? Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I have to say that it is not uncommon for us to show up and spend the first week or maybe even two, just getting the organization to a point where we have enough visibility to begin responding to the incident. And I like to joke, you know, we're, we're the world's most expensive SIM consultants because, you know, we're, we're you know, we're setting up logging infrastructure and, and deploying tools to get the information that we need in order to be effective as incident responders. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I've seen that quite a bit too. Where you get in, and it's just like uh, trying to get admin credentials to some of the basic things, and people rifling around trying to find those can be uh, can be a big delay organizationally to to get that uh, in place. And and another problem, I mean, that we see is you know being able to effectively operate the infrastructure. I mean, we you know we want to make an infrastructure change, for example, to send Windows uh, event logging to some you know remote. Um, server for for aggregation and analysis, and you know you go to the IT folks and you say, "How do you all do this in your environment?" And they say, "Well, we we go around to each system manually and and make the change." And you know you just your head falls down on the desk and you're thinking, "Okay, you know, again, just basic block and tackle IT operational stuff that you would like to believe that people have doped out, but but they haven't yet." Right. Now, without having to break any confidentiality or kind of anonymizing where you can, is there any particular breaches that you've worked that you found particularly interesting or maybe on a second note, personally rewarding to work on? Um, so, so I will say that it is very interesting to work um, multiple, multiple cases for different clients who are all in the same vertical market. Um, because often you meet the same adversary groups 
or apparently the same adversary groups um, over and over and over again. Um, and I, I think it's interesting uh, to watch, you know, the tradecraft evolve. Um, so, so that's, uh, to me, that's kind of fascinating. Um, you know, on the, on the other side of the coin, um, what's, you know, what's hard about my job is um, having, having conversations with the C-suite. I, I, honestly, I remember, um, you know, it was, it was that point in the incident where you, you've got a good handle on what's going on and, and you're, you're putting your ducks in a row for the big remediation event that's going to get the attackers out of the network. And we were working late one night and the um, CTO who we're, work, we're working with um, comes into our, our conference room where we're working and um, sits down and we're, we're just, you know, chatting like you do late at night, um, you know, talking about what's happened. And, um, you know, she says, well, you know, it's great. You know, you guys have done great work. Thank you very much. Um, it looks like we're going to get these people out of our network and, and move on with our lives. And, you know, having to have that uncomfortable conversation um, with this executive saying, well, you understand that, you know, as far as we can tell, the, the attackers did not achieve their objective. And so if we eject them from the network, they're going to come back. And so you're not, this isn't, this isn't a battle, you know, where we're done. It's a, it's an ongoing campaign. And I, I've never actually seen somebody's face turn white before, but you know, that, that theological moment when, when the executives realize, oh, wow, like this is a long haul kind of thing for us. Um, that, you know, that's a hard moment. Um, and I don't like to, to be the bearer of bad news like that, but, um, I, you know, getting people to think long-term on this stuff is, is really a hard problem. And it's a cultural problem, right? It's not a technical problem. And the cultural problems are always the hardest ones to, to solve in, in these organizations. Yeah, a lot of times I've seen that too, where they, they want to know when it started, when it's going to end, and they never want to realize it started way before you think it did, possibly with multiple uh, groups, and it's not going to stop. And we, we've seen that where we've been in networks and said, you know what, the only reason you even found out about this is this was the third set of attackers that tripped off the back doors of the first people that were quietly doing their work and <laughs> some noisy yeah. attacker came in and it's it's that same thing where they're like oh my god we've we've been under this for you know 18 months or whatever and they don't realize how long it's really been are, are you still seeing that too in your work where there's these long mean times to respond yeah you know and the you know the joke that uh, i often crack about this is you know we, we went to a boxing match and a hockey tournament broke out. You know, you get there and there's all these different teams, you know, skating around on the ice, you know, all these different, different groups. Um, and um, yeah, wow. Uh, and what's interesting is, you know, well, I mean, you know how much consolidation there is in the tech industry. And I mean, what we've seen in some organizations is, they basically acquired a, a smaller company and brought the attackers in with them because the, the acquisition target was already thoroughly owned. And then all of a sudden, when they join networks without doing a lot of diligence, the attackers now have free reign on the parent company as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, so add that to your M&A strategy, right? Um, 
and I and I think that the the companies who are good at M and A are already doing that. That's part of their playbook. But um, I, I've seen I've definitely seen cases where we were pretty sure the attackers were brought in by by M and A. Yeah, we we've, we've started to have some of those discussions as well with organizations to say, look, it's not just the the bottom line of the finances when you're doing an acquisition. You're you're kind of bringing in somebody else's dirty network, and what's the risk of that? And having to look at the impact on, on that as well. And it's like, oh yeah, we we should look at that. It's like, yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah, and again, I mean, maybe the Yahoo, you know, debacle is um, you know going to be fruitful in, in making that more visible to to boardrooms hopefully and so you've obviously been doing this for a while and have been probably heavily recruited over the years as most people that put anything about their information security background on linkedin or anywhere else uh, does but you've seemed to kind of stay on your own with with dear run associates why do you decide to kind of run your own thing as opposed to going with somebody else um well for me you know I like the freedom of it, honestly. Um, it, it's not for everybody, but I get to sort of manage my workload if I if I can afford to, and I feel like it. You know, I can I can take some time off and do some research, or you know, just hang out with my family. Um, and so uh, that aspect of it is appealing to me, and frankly, it frees me from just a lot of organizational and political impediments that, uh, you know, I, I don't, nobody likes to go to meetings, right? So, you know, as an independent consultant, people hire me and usually they've cleared the decks, right? There isn't going to be a lot of organizational impediment by the time they bring me in. They've identified a problem and they're tasking me to go make it go away. So that's, that's also, frankly, a nice aspect of the way I work. Um, people talk about, oh, well, isn't it risky to do what you're doing? Uh, okay. Uh, I, I mean, part of the reason consultants get paid a premium is, is because of that risk valuation. Um, but I will, I, I will say that we are all contingent employees. Uh, you may be a W-2 employee of some firm, and that may give you a feeling of security. But the reality is, your employer can let you go with little or no notice and little or no severance. So uh, given that we're all contingent employees, you know, maybe we all ought to be paid like we're contingent employees. That's just my philosophy on this. Certainly. Now, it, kind of being on your own, though, too, what, what are some of the trade-offs that you do see? Are, are there things from being in an organization that you feel that you might want or not have the support for? Yeah, so... Things I miss uh, being an independent. One is, um, you know, living with a project through its entire life cycle. Um, I usually get brought in to, you know, deliver some point solution, whether it's an incident response or implementing a particular project or whatever. But then I go away and I leave it in, you know, maintenance and upkeep mode with usually with, you know, people who are employed by the organization. So I, I don't get to watch these things mature and grow over time. And when I was, you know, a full-time employee and doing IT operations, that, I mean, it's always interesting to kind of watch how things evolve. Um, and I, you know, I don't get to do that. And I, and I sometimes miss that. Um, you know, there is, 
um, you know, the issue of you know, not having a team of people around you um, all the time that you you interact with and learn things from, which is why, you know, I'm I'm happy to report that um, a lot of the work I do, I I do, you know, as a subcontractor um, with with various firms, you know, with people I know and trust, um, because I mean, incident response certainly isn't a a solo effort. It's definitely a team sport. So, you know, my typical incident response engagement is me coming in and sort of a surge staffing role for a, a company that I'm comfortable with, um, where they're oversubscribed and they need, they need more people to deliver professional services. So I'll show up, you know, wearing their logo kind of thing and, and get to work with their teams, which is always rewarding. And I always, you know, learn stuff from my other teammates. Now, is there any particular piece of advice now that you've been doing this kind of on your own for a while that you would you would kind of give to somebody else that might have might be in that same boat where they're saying, "Hey, should I go out on my own?" Is there anything you would want to impart on them to say, you know, do this? So, the most important piece of advice that I try and give to to new consultants is take a deep breath and relax. Um, I what I see people who are just starting out as independents doing all the time is that they take every single job that comes their way. And they what they end up doing is they end up over committing themselves and actually doing a worse job than they otherwise would have. So there's plenty of work out there. Take a deep breath, pick something that interests you and execute crisply on it. Because honestly, the best way to get more business is to do a good job on the business you have. Um, you know, you get follow-on business from the organization you're working for, and they tell other people, right? So don't try and take on everything you can because you'll end up doing a bad job, and actually it'll hurt your reputation in the industry. Um, take on as much as you can do well, and give yourself room to breathe and, and have a life. And respect that work-life balance. I mean, one of the great things about being an independent consultant is is work-life balance, right? You get to pick your pacing. That Yes, uh, having been on my own at, at different stages in my career, I definitely can share the sentiment of, of all that way. You, you do want the tendency to say yes to everything, and you, you do end up uh, sacrificing too much of that work-life balance where you, there's only so much time in a day that you can manage it. I, I will say that if you go to, to my website, um, dearrun.com, um, there's a, a link there to a series of articles I wrote on on my blog, which is righteousit.com, um, about about being an independent consultant and some of my lessons learned from that. So there's there's twenty or thirty thousand words about being an independent consultant on my righteous IT blog. If people are interested in that, I mean, I wrote it a few years ago, but the information is still completely valid. Yeah, I'll be sure to include all that in the show notes for sure. And one of the things that we talked earlier about kind of giving back to the community, and you've been, uh, if, I, if I research this correctly, you're actually one of SAN's longest tenured instructors. Yes, I, I actually, as far as we can tell, I'm the SAN's faculty member who's been around the longest. How did, uh, how did that what was the inception of that? I mean, SANS has grown as an organization, certainly, and I've, I've done work with them myself. But uh, you, at what point did that start, and how did you get involved with them? 
So um, back in the early 90s, we've been 90 or 91, I submitted a, a refereed paper at this conference that I'd never heard of called SANS. And it turned out it was the, um, the very first SANS event as SANS. SANS sort of um, morphed out of uh, the Fed Unix group uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, Alan Paller, who had been involved not only in that group, but a, a bunch of other groups, including SIGGRAPH and a lot of other technical groups, um, had started this new thing called SANS. Anyway, so I gave a paper at the very first SANS event. It was just, you know, a 45-minute or hour-long presentation. And I, I'm not even sure I remember what the presentation was about. Oh, yeah, I, I remember. It was a, a dial-up authentication system that I uh, had built. So that tells you how long ago this was. <laughs> um, and um, anyway, so I, you know, I got to know Alan Paller and uh, Michelle Gell, um, who was sort of leading the, the charge, uh, reviewing papers and stuff like that. And we, um, you know, I, I don't know, it, it started like that. And I, I proceeded to give talks at SANS conferences and eventually the talks got so long that they turned into tutorials. And, uh, I, I think, you know, I went back and I looked, I think I taught my first paid tutorial for SANS back in 1994, which, tells you how long I've been teaching for SANS um, quite a while ago. And SANS was very different back in those days. I mean, we were doing like half day and one day tutorials. We weren't doing these, you know, tracked curricula like we, we are now. I mean, that, that really only started in the early 2000s. So um, been a lot of, a lot of miles, but you know, I, I like to think that SANS as an organization and, and me personally through my teaching have done a lot of good for, a lot of people in those 20 years so here's hoping yeah no it's it's helped me my career and pretty much all my staff they're uh they go through regular sans training and one of the courses you helped develop was the uh the linux unix security track how did that follow some of the same progression where it was maybe a, a shorter and now it's gone into a longer how how has that course developed yeah so uh, it, the, so the first tutorial I taught for SANS was a half-day course called Securing Solaris Step-by-Step. -step. Um, and it was a basic, you know, Solaris lockdown kind of course. Here's all the knobs you need to turn to tighten your Solaris system. And yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. O over time, that course turned into a one-day course. And then I started teaching courses about, you know, securing web servers or securing DNS servers. Um, but at the time, web and DNS servers ran on Unix. Um, and so that the application layer security stuff all merged together into the course. Um, and, and at the time, you know, SANS was looking at going into these tracked curricula, you know, there was a desire, hey, let's take all this Unix security knowledge that, that we have in these courses and put it together into, you know, a five or six day course. And, and I will say that I always wanted in that course to have some forensic um, information, right? Uh, I wanted people to be able to know if their Unix system has an intrusion, how do they respond to that? And what are just some basic forensic principles they could follow to, to help solve or at least know what's happening to them? 
And um, so, um, you know, I reached out to John Green, who is uh, also part of the Sands family. Um, he has been doing incident response work for the Navy. And I said, John, you want to, you know, bring in some some of your Unix IR stuff and, and make it part of the track. And so John actually wrote the first, um, you know, Linux forensics um, part of that material. And John's gone off and done other things. He was, you know, CISO for uh, state of Virginia, and he's now running the practice uh, for Deloitte in Australia, and good for him. So, you know, obviously I've been maintaining that that Linux forensic stuff, but honestly it was John's um, material that really got me thinking a lot more about doing Linux forensics and and that sort of aspect of my career progression. So, so thank you, John. We, again, we, we all need our, our friends along the way in, the, in, in our career path. Have there been some other mentors that stick out to you that have uh, kind of helped and kind of build you up? Um, you know, um, I think uh, certainly I've got to throw a shout out to Rob Lee, who uh, gave me my first uh, professional opportunity doing uh, forensic uh, consulting work. Um, back when he was working at Mandiant. And, and again, you know, it was a surge staffing thing. They were, uh, they were oversubscribed and needed somebody who could know their way around a Linux box. And uh, so, so Rob gave me that shot. So thank you, Rob. Um, uh, there, there were a lot of people early in my career. I mean, Barbara Lee, who I mentioned, who's my, my first boss, um, who got me started on the information security side of things. Um, Real, I mean, like I don't like to name drop, but you know, people who've given me good advice over the years or, or helped me along, uh, folks like Bill Cheswick and Paul Vixie, um, you know, uh, great people, and and honestly, all the people I, I work with, you know, uh, in the Sands faculty. I mean, folks like you know Ed Scotus, you know, um, and Tim Medine. Uh, I've learned a lot about uh, PowerShell and Windows Command from doing the command line kung fu blog with them. Um, you know, and all of all of my friends on the forensics faculty, I mean, Cindy Murphy, who, who you interviewed, I mean, and Heather Mahalik, uh, my go-to folks on mobile forensics, um, Sarah Edwards, uh, who, you know, teaches me a lot about uh, Mac stuff, um, you know, Alyssa, uh, Jake, uh, Lenny, you know, all these people. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great community because it's, it's definitely, um, I think, a... a I wouldn't say necessarily a mistake, but maybe a, a misunderstanding. A lot of people coming into the industry figure, okay, well, I, ha I have to know everything. You know, I have to learn it all. It's like, I, I, you know, figure out what you're good at. And as uh, Chris Pogue and Cindy Murphy have kind of said before, you know, kind of be like a chihuahua on a pork chop. Pick that one <laughs> thing, get really good at it. But build a network of folks that know uh, things you don't know. So you can go to them and ch uh, change, exchange ideas. Yeah, and this is, you know, I mean, it's honestly, it's one of the things that's been a little bit concerning to me in the industry. When I started, you know, back in the late '80s, really, um, there was a there was a huge ecosystem of community groups and user groups. You know, from Usenix to Baylisa and and all these different groups. And there were places you could go to find people to talk to and get that mentorship and build those contacts. And I see a lot despite the fact that there's way more IT now than there ever was when I got started, it seems like a lot of it is, is more fragmented. And, uh, you know, with a few notable exceptions like B-sides and things like that, there, there doesn't seem to be as much of a community 
um, out there for people to go. And, and, and it's, it's dangerous because you don't know what you don't know, right? I mean, unless you're interacting with other people in the industry, you, you end up developing blind spots in, in your knowledge base. And, and having people to bounce ideas off of and interact with helps you realize, oh, huh, there's this whole body of knowledge that I don't know anything about. And so um, I, I'm very pro user group. And, and you know, I'm, I'm here now in the Orlando, Florida area, and I'm a relatively recent transplant. But I'm, I'm looking around and, and trying to, you know, develop a, a, a community. I mean, we've got a couple of great university IT programs in the area, um, including UCF, who's been you know, totally kicking butt on the CCDC competition recently. Um, and there's a lot of tech, actually, in the Orlando area, which surprised me when I arrived here. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at trying to foster that that community. But I, I would urge people to do that for themselves, not because you think it's going to you know, get you a job or something like that, but because you need people to talk to um, you know, in this industry. And you know, maybe people who aren't working for the same company as you, so you get news from outside. And we need to do a better job as a community of like, fostering up-and-coming talent Right. I mean, people say, oh, you know, there's this, you know, cybersecurity skills gap or talent shortage. Right. Well, that's not going to get better unless we start educating and mentoring and training people. What are some ways I think maybe that we can kind of look at a couple different ways, maybe seasoned people in the industry. What are some things that we can do to try to create that network or, you know, kind of build that community again? You know, um, I think about I think about why that community that I was part of in, in the early part of my career got started. It started because I mean, in the Unix world, you know, AT and T had had unleashed Unix upon the world, but were not providing any sort of support um, for the organization. So the users banded together um, in order to just be able to deal with that. Uh, you know, the, that that lack of support coming from um, the organization. And I, I think we see that, uh, I think it's one of the reasons why the DFIR community is maybe one of the more vibrant communities out there, because we're, I sort of see us in the same place. We're basically trying to reverse engineer with zero documentation, you know, a lot of these, you know, proprietary solutions from, from the Windows operating system on upwards. Um, and so that tends to breed a certain amount of uh, foxhole camaraderie as, as we're all you know, grappling with different ends of the elephant and trying to figure out what's going on there. So I would say um, find a problem. Find a problem that is pertinent to your particular space, whether that's, you know, application development or, um, you know, building embedded systems and build a community of people around solving that problem. Because then, you you know, people get engaged, right? It's not just, oh, yeah, we're going to meet up for beers, right? I mean, we're in this industry because we like to solve problems, I think, as a general rule. Um, so find a problem and build a, build your community around solving that problem. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a, 
a good spin on it, I think, too often. And uh, I've probably done it in the past, too, starting you know, some, some meetup groups or different things. Like, yeah, we, we want to get together, but then now what? You know, what's the next step? How do we stay together? But um, I, I think what some of the advice I have been giving to people mostly, too, recently is, yeah, kind of build that network because you never know where you're going to be down on your career path where you're either going to need help or advice or even just staffing. Um, and it's so imperative to have a community built to do that. Um, so it's it's you know, whatever you have to do to get out there and just try to meet people is is somewhat some of the most important things that you can do in this in this field I I think. Yeah, and and you know, and the problem is the the time that people think about this is when they're having that down patch in their career, and it's hard to gen that up quickly, right? It's something where you need to be in the community for a while and making all of these contacts and building this network. It's not something where you can just suddenly, you know, just add water and, and have this network. It's something you need to cultivate when times are going good against the times when things are going less good. Definitely. Uh, well, Hal, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to speak to me, speak to me today. Is there places people can find you? You mentioned a couple blogs. Um, I'll definitely put them all in the show notes, but if you want to kind of plug where you are so people can kind of find you. Yeah. So, um, Honestly, if you type in Hal Pomeranz in Google, the, the first link, I think, is is my publications page. So it's dear-run.com. Um, there's a publications link off of that main website where I have basically links to all of the other stuff that I've done. I mean, that's the sort of clearinghouse of, of Hal Pomeranz. Um, so that has links to the Sans Forensics blog and my Righteous IT blog and Command Line Kung Fu and, and all the presentations I've given at, at various um different, you know, user groups and things like that. Great. I'll be sure to link that as well as your Twitter feed and some of the other links uh, on the show notes page when the episode goes live. Great. All right. Well, Hal, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, Doug, uh, you know, this is a great series and um, keep going. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.